Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Ilkeston, 1861. Joseph Smith was an odd fellow. Not odd as in odd-odd, but he was an odd fellow. At the time, in the mid-1800s, Oddfellows were one of the greatest movements for social protection and progression in the country. Long before the foundation of Nye National Health Service, long before the initial movement towards a universal social safety net that was the crowning glory of the first Liberal government in 1910. A mutual society of tradesmen and merchants, it was a fraternal brotherhood, described sometimes as socialist Freemasons, where members formed a collective body through which for themselves, and importantly their employees, on the basis of making regular subscriptions, they were able to receive sickness benefits and medical care. The organisation was treated with suspicion by the state and landowning classes, viewing them as an attempt to instil a form of socialism into the working class a collective endeavour by tradesmen and small-scale business owners to support an individual in the time of need. Nicknamed locally Red Smith for his supposed left-leaning views, at his funeral in June 1861, at the Methodist Chapel, which was just across the street from his home, the whole town turned out, with dignitaries from all over the county in attendance including over a hundred members of the Manchester Order of Oddfellows, the lodge to which Joseph was a member. One person, however, was conspicuous by their absence, his eldest son, George. George was being held at Derby Jail on Vernon Street, charged with the murder of his father, a crime for which he would hang. Joseph's professional life was defined by two things, hard work and success. The row of four terrace cottages he owned outright on Bath Street in Ilkinston not only provided premises for his work, but also homes for his extended family. By trade, Joseph was, in the parlance of the day, a cordwainer. To the uninformed, and I include myself in this group, a cordwainer is someone who makes shoes. Surely someone who makes shoes is a cobbler, I hear you ask. Incorrect, I'm afraid. A cobbler repairs shoes. A cordwainer makes shoes. Another term for someone who makes shoes is, of course, a shoemaker. And I don't think it's exogenous to work out why one term survived, while cordwainer drifted off into obscurity. The largest property, a double-fronted, whitewashed cottage, which held a prominent corner position on the main commercial street in Ilkeston, was both a workshop and a showroom. The next cottage along was living accommodation, which Joseph shared with his three sons, Edward 8, Henry 17 and George 20. The youngest boy, Edward, was still at school with his two eldest in work, Henry with his father in the family business, and George, a lace maker with Messrs Ball and Co, which, at the time, was situated just across the street from the house. In the smaller house next door lived Joseph's oldest child, his daughter Sarah and her husband Aaron Eldred, and next door to them, completing the terrace of four, was Eldred's brother and his wife. It was an arrangement that suited everyone involved, and at 46, Joseph appreciated having his family close. He'd lost his first wife, Harriet, a mother to his children, in a typhus outbreak of 1854, and with the exception of a tempestuous 22-week marriage to a local woman, he spent the previous seven years as a single widower. The death of Harriet hit Joseph hard. 
he developed a difficult relationship with alcohol and suffered long periods of depression. His children were therefore a strong source of stability and support to him, both practically and emotionally. He was considered by all that knew him to be an industrious, conscientious and devout man. Some in Ilkeson, however, described him as an indulgent father. The child that seemed to take most advantage of this perceived indulgence was his oldest son, George. At 20, George had a reputation as a hard-drinking womaniser. In public houses across the town, debts were acquired with abandon, only to be cleared with similar regularity by his father. Local gossip had him responsible for at least two imminent births in the town, although his desire to make an honest woman of one of the mothers-to-be was a point of conflict between him and his father, who was less than enthusiastic about the match. It was in these circumstances that on the 2nd of May 1861, George found himself in the Nottingham Savings Bank on George Street in Nottingham. Joseph's bank book in hand and accompanied by his friend Henry Davis he attempted to withdraw £14 from one of his father's accounts. It's difficult sometimes to assess the value of historical sums of money through contemporary eyes. In simple terms £14 would be worth £2,000 today. A more useful measure might be that £14 in the early 1860s was the entire annual salary of a bank clerk. One of those very bank clerks was Mr John Stevenson, who, in the absence of a letter of authorisation from Joseph himself, refused to hand the money over to George. Undeterred, and borrowing some money from a publican, his father's savings book being left as collateral, George and his travel companion, Henry, set him out an afternoon of drinking, shopping and some further drinking. The pair finally arrived back in Ilkeston by the early evening, the worse for drink and inevitably penniless. Staggering their separate ways, George returned home for some supper, with plans to meet Henry's brother Reuben later in the evening at another local hostelry. The day at Joseph's workshop had been an altogether more industrious affair. Joseph and his middle son Henry had already worked late, finishing off some time after eight, with Henry going to visit a friend for a couple of hours and Joseph making a short walk around the corner to see his brother Samuel, a fellow shoemaker. Returning home just after ten, Henry found the house quiet. His younger brother Edward had got back just moments earlier and his father Joseph was sat by the fire and enjoying his pipe. The three ate a supper of bread and milk by gas lamp on the upper floor of the house, after which, at almost a quarter to midnight, the two sons made for bed. Joseph explained to Henry that he was just going to spend a few more minutes with his pipe and went downstairs to the workshop. Silence had fallen on the home. The boys were drifting off to sleep while, downstairs, Joseph, pipe hanging from the corner of his mouth, was becoming increasingly agitated. He was sure one of his saving books should have been in the drawer with the others. He put it there the other day and only saw it yesterday. Where was it? The door to Henry's bedroom was ajar. He could hear his father searching the drawers closing and opening. He heard one slam, just after he'd heard the downstairs front door slam too. George, Joseph's voice raised, have you been to Nottingham today? Henry couldn't distinguish specific words or even who was doing most of the talking, but the volume and the heat of the argument was rising. To and fro, back and forth for ten, fifteen, twenty seconds, Then bang, the crack of a shot, a crash to the ground, then the front door opened and someone ran out, 
the door thumping shut behind them. The arguing, gunshot and slamming of the front door scared eight-year-old Edward from his sleep and he ran to his brother's Henry's room. Henry had been awake and listening to the cuffle downstairs, jumped with his brother to the window, threw it open and cried out into the yard, Murder! In the distance, the outline of their eldest brother George could be seen disappearing into the night. Sometimes, true crime podcasts, and I should be honest and say that it's something I've attempted to do with this series of podcasts, try and create a whodunit feel to things. Was it the creepy kid from a class? Was it the weird guy who runs the corner shop? Was it her uncle, who's never really recovered from his two tours of Iraq? Like I say, in past editions, it's something I've sought to build into the way I share these cases with you. To be honest, I sometimes feel a bit uneasy in doing it though, almost as if I'm trying to turn tragedy into a form of entertainment. The truth is though, that all true crime is storytelling. It's about telling a story in which the most unimaginable tragedy befalls an individual, and through its presentation, we try to engage listeners in not only the narrative, but also allow them to learn something about the context in which the crime had taken place. I don't want to sound too highfalutin, but true crime is a lens through which we can look at society and the individuals who inhabit it and unpack some of the prejudices and peculiarities therein. The idea of a whodunit is simply a dramatic device to keep an audience engaged. In the case of the death of Joseph Smith, though, there was never any way in which his murder was a whodunit. From the second the gunshot rang out around his workshop and out into the streets of Ilkeston, it was obvious that the culprit was his eldest son, George Smith. A contemporary illustration of the arrest of George Smith, which appeared in the London papers and reprinted in their regional stable mates at the time of his trial, showed two top-hatted police officers entering an elegant Victorian drawing room. Art hangs next to the neat fireplace. Bonneted ladies sit at the dining table and a fashionably dressed George is resplendent in breeches, a waistcoat and a short-cut tailored jacket. The reality of the scene was somewhat different. Constables George Carlin and Charles Ridge were on their usual evening patrol along Bath Street when they heard the cries coming from the Smith house. Within a few minutes of entering the parlour, they were met with the sight of Joseph's body, lay still and bleeding from the head, there against the hearth. Surrounding him were not only his youngest sons, but seven other tenants of the full property terrace. By this time, George himself had returned, along with his drinking pal Reuben Davis. Also summoned by the screams with Joseph's brother, Samuel. Excluding the murdered Joseph, the small and dimly lit room was now host to ten people, and with accusations, denials and recriminations flying in all directions, the picture was one of chaos and confusion. Not until the arrival of Superintendent Hudson was order and calm brought to bear. His first and most decisive action was to arrest George and have him taken into custody. As he was dragged away, George made it clear in the most forceful terms that he was innocent and that his father had taken his own life. With the cause of most of the disturbances safely out of the way, the room was cleared and attention moved to the body of Joseph, which lay in a large pool of blood, a gaping wound to the left side of his head. In order to get a more considered medical opinion, Dr Norman was summoned and undertook a preliminary examination of the dead man's body. Joseph had died, he summarised, as a result of a gunshot wound just behind his left ear, which was discharged from close range. The trajectory 
An entry wound indicated that the trigger was pulled by someone other than Joseph, as it had been impossible for him to do so with his right hand and unlikely to be impossible with his left. After a thorough search of the scene, another observation cast the suggestion of suicide as unlikely. The complete absence of a weapon. Over the course of three public hearings, the inquest into the death of Joseph Smith, George's initial hearing in front of the local magistrates, and finally, his trial at Derby Assizes, George insisted on and maintained his innocence. On each occasion, his version of events surrounding his father's death remained consistent. His father had a history of depression and suicidal ideation, the pair had argued on the night in question and that it was his father that was responsible for pulling the trigger. The weight of evidence against him, though, was overwhelming and three months after Joseph's death, the entire case for the prosecution was laid bare before a jury at Derby Assizes on the morning of July the 29th, 1861. Waking late, as was his habit, by the mid-morning of the 2nd of May 1861, George Smith left his father's workshop and made what was a short walk to Ilkeston Railway Station. His intention? To catch the 11 o'clock train to Nottingham. Somewhere between the shop and the station, George bumped into his friend, Henry Davis, and invited him to join him on his journey, generously offering to pay his fare. The first stop on the arrival in Nottingham was the Nottingham Savings Bank, where, as we've heard, George attempted and failed to withdraw £14 from his father's savings account. Not to be put off, George led Henry to the Black Ball, where friend and landlord John Bridger lent George £1, securitising this against his father's savings book. A morning that looked like ended in a wasted journey, had been salvaged, and by lunchtime George and Henry were celebrating in the Tom Moody public house with friend and sex worker Elizabeth Meakin. After an hour or so, and with the money clearly burning a hole in his pocket, George popped out to do a spot of shopping, leaving Henry and Elizabeth with enough money to keep the drinks flowing. As well as purchasing a pair of boots and a pocketbook, George also bought a pistol. It was his visit to the shop of Miss Carr to buy gunpowder, however, that the first signs of his slightly odd behaviour manifested themselves. Clearly happy to have a working firearm, he attempted to take a test shot within the shop. Miss Carr, clearly not one to suffer fools gladly, quickly and unceremoniously ushered him outside onto the street from where he made his way back to Moody's and his waiting friends. Proud of his new boots, George showed them off not only to his companions, but also anyone else who happened to be in the pub. With spirits high, George then retired for an hour or so to Elizabeth Meakin's lodging house, where, amongst other things, he showed her his pistol. Meakin's questioned George as to why he needed a gun and cautioned him as to the dangerousness of such a weapon. George insisted that he'd only use it against one who wished him harm, but, rather incriminatingly, that were his father to offend him, he'd not hesitate to use it against him. After catching the train together back to Ilkeston just after 7pm, George and Henry went their separate ways. But instead of returning home, George met Henry's brother Reuben and the pair spent the evening drinking in the Queen's Head pub. 
It was just before midnight when Reuben bid farewell to his drinking partner and made his way home. During their long evening together, a couple of things occurred that, given the events that unfold at the Smith House, would prove significant. Firstly, on the way to the Queen's Head, George stopped and asked an eight-year-old girl, Martha Cockenai, to go to the shop on George's way and buy, on his behalf, a penny's worth of number two pigeon shot. Secondly, at some point in the evening, George left Reuben for about ten minutes to briefly call back to his home just a few doors down. Returning, he made the curious observation that his father, Joseph, had been in a distressed state, was searching for something in the pantry, and that George thought he'd make away with himself before long. To even one of the most naive imagination, the fact that in the past 12 hours George had attempted to steal a significant amount of money from his father, borrowed money elsewhere to buy a firearm, purchased gunpowder and shot from two separate establishments, and was now suggesting Joseph may, at some undefined point in the future, take his own life, would, well, can I suggest that you don't need to be Columbo to think that questions might need to be asked? It's from this point onwards, though, that the facts of the case, as presented by the prosecution and the defence, differed. George asserted that on returning home, he and his father argued, and that, in a state of agitation and mania, his father discovered his loaded pistol, which George had earlier in the evening left in a drawer, and shot himself in the back of the head, falling to the floor in front of the hearth. In shock and terror, George asserted, he'd grabbed the gun from his father's lifeless hand and ran from the house, tossing the weapon as he went, and straight to the home of Reuben, whom he dragged back to the workshop, firmly reminding him on the way of the convenient conversation that they had earlier in the evening, regarding his father's state of mind and likely suicide. When questioned as to his need for the gun, George refuted the testimony of Nottingham sex worker Elizabeth Meekins. He claimed never to have said he'd have used it to settle scores, and instead explained that as a long-term pigeon racer, it'd be useful when measuring the reaction time of birds. And dumping in the pigsty? An impulsive and irrational act in the face of a traumatic experience. And anyway, if he was trying to stage a suicide, wouldn't he have just put the gun into his father's hand, as opposed to removing it from the scene? The possibility of suicide was challenged by a string of witnesses called before the court. Samuel, Joseph's brother, spoke of the good spirits his sibling had been in that night, a characterisation confirmed by Joseph's two youngest sons. By coincidence, Dr Norman, who undertook the first examination of the body, was also Joseph's doctor alongside explaining the improbability of Joseph being able to shoot himself in the back of the head, he also explained how, while Joseph had made one previous attempt on his life, this had been in the wake of his first wife's death. Since then, and with his children to care for, his moon had been positive, and given no reason for the doctor to consider Joseph a risk of suicide. As well as Elizabeth Meekins, one of George's former lovers, Anne Eyre, also gave evidence, firstly of how George had spoken of killing his father, and secondly, his belief that, as the oldest son, he'd automatically be in line to inherit his father's substantial estate. The issue of inheritance was also explored by two other witnesses. One was a colleague of George's, of whom he'd inquired as to whether, as the eldest son, he would be in line as a single beneficiary should his father die. The other was Ellen Cox, one of the two women who was pregnant by George. She revealed that ten days prior to the murder, George had explained that his father's displeasure at their match would soon be a moot point because, to use George's own words, he'd receive his fortune next week. When Dr Gill who carried out the post-mortem, was called to the stand. 
he brought with him a piece of physical evidence that proved of particular interest to the jury. During the post-mortem, during his examination of the wound inflicted by the pistol, Dr Gill collected each and every of the 31 pieces of number 2 pigeon shot that had been lodged themselves into Joseph's skull. The combined weight of these 31 pieces, it was revealed, both weighed the same and were of the same size that George had asked Martha Cock and I to buy for him earlier in the evening. The final, and possibly most damning witness to speak, was Sophia Meakin. On the night of the murder, she'd been walking along Bath Street with her niece Harriet, their way illuminated by a hand-held gas lamp. As the pair approached the Smith's house, they saw George stood by the door of his father's workshop, holding a black object in his right hand. When Harriet lifted the lamp in the direction of George, Sophia explained that he'd turned his back on them as if to hide either his identity or the object he was holding. He then entered the building. Within seconds of him doing so, they both heard a single gunshot from inside the house, followed immediately by a flustered and agitated George flying out of the door and out onto the street in front of them, before he was seen running away into the distance. The significance of the testimony, said the prosecution, was that George had been clear. He and his father had argued before the fatal shot was fired. The time, as explained by Miss Sophie, of him entering until he exited the house was just seconds. The chances of an argument erupting in such a short period of time of George arriving home was impossible and put pay to the entire tissue of lies and obfuscation. No witnesses were called in George's defence. In a statement to the jury, he rehearsed the rebuttals already provided to the court and in a tone that was described in the newspapers of the day as one of great coolness and affronteries to the accusations, he admitted that his actions and attitude had driven Joseph to suicide. Therefore, if God deemed his hanging as a fitting punishment, he'd accept his place at the gallows willingly. With that, the jury was sent away to deliberate on the willful murder of widower, father, Odd fellow and cordwainer Joseph Smith at the hands of his eldest son, George. When an individual was found guilty of willful murder in an English court in 1861, The guidance given to judges was that only one sentence could be passed, that of death by hanging. Before retiring to consider their verdict, the jury is reminded of this, not only by George Smith's defence, but also the judge. The responsibility that rested on those twelve jurors, therefore, was great. In their hands lay not only a duty of ascribing guilt or innocence, but also the fact that the life of a fellow human would be decided on their deliberations. That, within minutes of the jury room door closing behind them, they were back in court with a verdict, was as surprising as it was definite. They'd unanimously found George guilty of murdering his father. Before passing sentence, Judge Wilkes turned to George, and offered him the opportunity to say a few words. As it turned out, George had more than a few words to say. Rising from his seat, he stood upon it, and for several minutes the coolness he'd displayed earlier evaporated in the red rage of his fury. Letting loose, he launched a tirade against each and every prosecution witness, condemning them as liars and of conspiring to see him hang Shaking his clenched fist before slamming it into his chest for emphasis, he declaimed to the court, I am innocent, and I stand here with a clear conscience and an upright heart and contented mind. It's not likely that my hand is stained with my father's blood, no. I loved him, and I would not shed his blood. 
after being restrained and encouraged to use the chair for the purposes for which it was intended, Judge Wilkes was scathing in his condemnation of George as a sinful, deceitful and unrepentant man. He moved to deliver his sentence. When passing a death sentence, in English courts, judges would place on top of their judicial wig a black cap. Although not an actual fitted cap, but a square of black silk, it's believed that the tradition dates back to Tudor England. Although capital punishment was, in reality, abolished in the United Kingdom in 1965, it's still part of the judges' official regalia today and must be present for all court sittings. The sentence of the court, intoned Judge Wilkes, is that you be taken from the place in which we are now standing to a place from whence you came, and from thence to a place of execution, and that there you be hanged by the neck until your body is dead, and that body, when dead, be buried within the precincts of the jail where you shall have last been confined. The jail in question was in Derby, and during the three and a half months between his sentencing and his execution, George came to terms with his fate. Family, for the most part, stood by him and visited George regularly in prison. The exception was Samuel, Joseph's brother, who, on a visit to the jail, offered to hang George himself should no executioner be available. Despite George's professed faith as being Methodism, another regular visitor was the Reverend Ebenezer Sloan Heron of the Ilkeston Independent Chapel. Non-aligned to any particular hue of Christianity, the Independent Church was, and still is, of a non-denominational persuasion. Based around literal interpretations of the Old and New Testament, it's far more morally prescriptive than Methodism, believing too that individuals are born in sin and the life's a continual journey back to the perfect image of a man as represented by Christ. Maybe the idea that everyone's flawed appealed to George's vision of himself as a victim of circumstance. We won't know. But during these conversations with the Reverend Heron, he admitted his culpability in his father's murder. Not quite able to confess to premeditation, he maintained that he didn't plan to murder Joseph, but that it was a combination of hot-headedness and the evils of drink. George also wrote his old Sunday school teacher at the primitive Methodist chapel, Mr Samuel Shaw. Offering his own crimes as a cautionary tale for his students, George wanted to warn the children against the evils of drink, Sabbath-breaking, Smoking, going to dances, playing dominoes and, curiously, keeping pigeons. In fact, in the month before his execution, George became almost evangelical in his belief that his fall should be viewed as a life lesson to others, penning a poem which was read into sermons and services in churches across Ilkeston. It's quite long, and it's safe to say George was no Simon Armitage, but... I do think it gives an insight into his thinking at the time. You feeling Christian, pray attend and listen unto me, while unto you I will unfold this dreadful tragedy. Committed by a guilty one, as you shall quickly hear, upon his father at Ilkeston, well known in Derbyshire. Oh, the dreadful seed was done, a father murdered by his son. I hope you will a warning take by what I now relate. And think of my untimely end, for wreathed is in my fate. I shall have lived in happiness, as you shall quickly hear, or with my aged father at Ilkeston in Derbyshire. Sure, Satan must have tempted me upon that fateful day. 
my kind and tendy father, to take his life away. Or with a deadly weapon, it was full intent. I gave him not the shortest time, on earth for thee to repent. I was confined in Derby jail, my trail to wait. For the awful crime of murder, my sufferings were so great. The jury found me guilty, and I am condemned to die. The awful death of public scorn upon the gallows high. A black cap being in readiness, when I was tried and cast. The learned judge with solemn voice, the awful sentence passed. You must prepare to meet your God, we can no mercy show. So pray for mercy from above, for there's none down here below. I dread to think upon the hour, or on that fatal morn, when I must ascend the scaffold high to die a death of scorn. To the fatal spot thousands will come, that dreadful sight to see, George Smith to end his days upon the gallows tree. I've brought disgrace upon myself, my friends and family. No one, I'm sure, will sympathise or soothe my misery. I shall prepare to meet my God, I hear the solemn knell. My time is come, I must away, farewell at last, farewell. Well, I know what I think these 58 lines suggest about George's feelings, about the murder of his father, and what he considers to be the moral of the story. It'd of course be inappropriate for me to disclose my own views at this stage. I'll leave you to come up with your own interpretation. Since 1800, convictions for crimes such as highway robbery, murder, horse theft, resulted in 32 public executions taking place in Derby up until the execution of George Smith. It was only eight months later, with the hanging of Richard Thornley, that the final public execution took place in the city. Reading the contemporary reporting, it's noticeable how much importance is placed on prayer and Bible readings in the preceding days. Numerous reports speak of individuals finding peace and acceptance of their fate in scripture or the calming words of a priest. In the case of the hanging for the murder of Joseph Smith at Derby Jail on the 16th of August 1861, the religious observers seemed to be of an almost excessive nature. Since George's conversion to a repented sinner, he appeared to have spent almost the entire four days prior to his execution, either on his knees in prayer or on his feet singing hymns. Several ministers came and went, along with prayers offered alongside the prison governor, fellow inmates and jailers. Specific passages from the New Testament were reprinted in the press and analysed for what they might suggest as the George's state of mind. Long, earnest pieces of journalism described the stoicism with which George met his fate, the respect he displayed to those with a part to play in his execution, and again, his devotion to seek forgiveness in the eyes of his God. As he ascended the steps of the gallows, he shook hands with the Sheriff of Derby and the prison governor, a man to whom he'd previously been hostile, and thanked the latter for his kindness. His last words, as reported in the Derby Mercury, were that while my body may be destroyed, I feel quite sure my soul will live in heaven. It took just seconds for George to die by the hangman's noose after which he was, as directed by the judge at his trial, buried within the walls of the prison. Your views on George's Damascene conversion are your own, and, like I said, it'd be wrong for me to express a personal opinion. What I do feel confident in saying, though, is that through all the reporting of the time, two things stand out. The first is the emphasis on the guilty man's spiritual awakening and his desire to seek forgiveness in the eyes of his God. It was less than a year after George's execution that public hangings seized in Derby, and as such, the focus on religious salvation, as reported in the press, 
may suggest a reflection of a public mood which felt increasingly uneasy at the idea of creating a spectacle out of executions, at the idea of this vicious form of civil entertainment, that it was unedifying, uncivilised and inappropriate. The second is how Joseph is marginalised in the reporting. Even during the coverage of the trial, the focus was almost exclusively on the character of the murderer, his motives and the salacious rumours around his life. When it came to reporting his hanging, Joseph, his murder and the impact on the wider family was entirely absent. In its place came almost blanket coverage of the passages George was reading, the hymns he was singing and the intentions of his prayers. Seems that the criticism of media coverage of killings that so exercises us today, the predominance of reportage around the killer while the victims ignored and forgotten, was just as prevalent 150 years ago as we see in the modern media. Could it be that while we've accepted that the vengeful and barbaric act of execution has no place in the civilised modern society, we still retain a ghoulish fascination with those who commit a crime? over the lived and lost lives of their victims. When I go and visit uh, locations for these cases the points to try and get a sense of place from them um, the contemporary cases while buildings may have new windows or doors and shops say that well they're likely to have changed hands even in a short time in those circumstances it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination think what a place would have been like 10 or so years ago when like this the case is over a century and a half old though you'd think that any sense of what was there then would be would be long gone well I'm stood here on Bath Street in Ilkeston. I'm on the corner which joins Stamford Street, a residential side road at the north end of, of Bath Street and while there's absolutely no buildings remaining from the period it's strange because I think, I think from what I've learned through the research I think I can get a, a handle on what, what it would have been like. The Queen's Head Ale House would have been on this corner, one of the many pubs that George visited on the day he murdered Joseph. More significantly though, it was from here he walked just before closing time, just before midnight, down to his house at number 60. This part of the street's open. Traffic can move up and down in either direction. Where the pub used to be, there's a on this corner. There's a large and well, quite a snazzy charity shop. As I said, the building, most of them, all of them, are from a much later period. I think probably late Victorian or or Edwardian. The red brick, three stories with a tall flat windows and pitched slate roofs. The brickwork is scarred with decades worth of smoke and ash but when you look at the shops there's a huge amount of independent retailers. The Ilkinston of 1861 would have been similar. Small 
family businesses, just like Joseph's. I'm heading along the pavement down to number 60. A straight walk up a slight slope, just a few hundred meters down. The, um, the Queen's Head was actually the scene of another family tragedy to strike the Smiths. Um, I think about 20 years after Joseph's murder, one of his cousins was killed during a fight in that pub. Now, it's pedestrian uh, traffic on the road. Um, as far as I've been able to find out, um, one man was found guilty of manslaughter, but the brawl was kind of a six of one and half a dozen of the other affairs, so no one really ever got to the bottom of what actually went on. I'm at number 70 now, just passing uh, Style Cuts with a Z from my left, and the road becomes pedestrianised. Ahead of me on the left is a cute cafe and gift shop called Harrop and Finch, and well, here some 20 years after Joseph's murder his youngest son Edward who was seven at the time kept the family business going and diversified and made what was here into the town's high-end shoe and clothing retailer Edward despite being orphaned at such a young age really went on to be mayor of Ilkeston and I think it was an honour that was was bestowed on his two of his sons as well I think family must have been so important to Edward growing up in the circumstances he did so to make such a success of his life both in business and as a father and as a husband. A few doors down at number 60, that's where I am now, well, and as far as I can tell, this is where Joseph lived and worked and ultimately died. It's only a couple of minutes from the Queen's Head and almost directly opposite the Methodist Church where his funeral took place. The church itself has been replaced by a concrete version uh, but the way it's set back from the street and the it stands detached from the terraces on either side of it. It's actually quite similar to how it would have been 150 years ago. I mentioned before how few buildings from the period remain in Ilkeston, and in this spot at number 60, between a subway and the nail bar is one of the most ubiquitous sites on any modern British high street. A vape shop. There is absolutely nothing to suggest what happened here or even a hint to what the building sat here in 1861 more. Records show that Samuel, Joseph's brother, 
actually had a workshop in the subway next door. Not, not the actual subway, obviously, but well, you get the point. And it's it's quite heartwarming to think of this extended family all living in such close proximity to each other. In the months and years following Joseph's murder, as its story and his questionable poem that was penned by George became a fable through which the young were warned to avoid the dangers of drink, Samuel wrote a letter to the local newspaper urging priests and ministers in Ilkeston to stop using the murder of his brother as a teaching aid and simply let the family move on and grieve the loss of a father and a brother instead of revelling in the failings and foibles of George. The retellings of a crime as a moral lesson the recounting of a murder that puts the perpetrator at the centre of the story as I stand opposite Joseph and his family's thriving and industrious home if Samuel's plea isn't a reason for me to stop talking now, then, well, nothing is. Hello and thanks for listening. Over the last six weeks or so, couple of months, I have really enjoyed doing this. So I hope you've enjoyed listening and like I say, thank you. I would, however, like to ask you a favour. Would it be possible that you went onto your podcast app? and you subscribed and rated us. Apparently it helps. I don't really understand how, why. But, you know, smarter people than me seem to think that's important. Smarter people than me have also told me that it doesn't really matter what you write in the narrative bit underneath. So you could say that you find my voice annoying. You could say that the audio quality is dreadful that the cases are boring, Um, anything you like, really. Just give it five stars, that'd be brilliant. So thank you for that. Um, We're on all the socials. Oh, that sounded awful. All the socials. You can find us on social media. Um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Um... TikTok features my production assistant, who is my chocolate Labrador. So, if you like the sight of um, gorgeous chocolate Labradors, he's got a couple of TikToks there. And, yes, so, thank you very much. Pop over, say hello. I'd love to know what you think. <laughs>